the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Clark Hilton is engineering. James Blend is producing. Today we're going to talk with Peter Brooks. He's a senior fellow in National Security Affairs at the Douglas and Sarah Allison Center for Foreign Policy. We're going to talk about national security, as it was mentioned in the State of the Union address, or not mentioned, beginning with the Winter Olympics and North Korea. We're also going to share a conversation with Sheriff David Clark, uh, which I had uh, two days ago um, in the first hour of today's program. We played it later in the program uh, the day before yesterday, but wanted to make sure uh, listeners to the first hour had an opportunity to hear that conversation and to be made aware of the upcoming um, opportunity to gather with other like-minded individuals. It's the 2018 Freedom Rally uh, to support fiscal responsibility, life, public safety, family values, and religious liberty. That's at the Holiday Inn Airport here in Portland. Again, that's uh, this Saturday, February the ter- the 3rd. The doors open at 11. Um, uh, the event Starts at noon, lunch is included, and you can find out more at OregonLibertyAlliance.com. That's OregonLibertyAlliance.com. And again, I want to emphasize the location has changed. There's better parking, easier access to the event at the Holiday Inn Airport. Um, that's coming up this Saturday, so we'll hear from him and tell you more about that. Uh, in that conversation. And then we're going to talk with Pastor Scott Gilchrist about the uh, Romans Project. It really is a very simple project that's doing extraordinary things among uh, pastors and church leaders in Africa and Asia. Pastor Scott will tell us more about that. And we'll talk with Matt Tallman. He's going to talk with us about the upcoming short-term mission connection. That's coming up later this month, the 23rd and 24th. And this is a more focused approach uh, of mission connection on short-term missions with a uh, best practices uh, event taking place the day earlier. We'll tell you more about that when he joins us. Again, that will be in the uh, the 5 o'clock hour. Also, we're going to be giving away our next uh, pair of Johnny W. Comedy Night tickets. We weren't live on the air yesterday, uh, so we'll be giving away two pair of tickets. I think it's right the way to say that. Two pair of Johnny W. Comedy Night tickets. That's going to be at um, East Hill, and we'll give you the details of that when we give those tickets away sometime during today's program. So there you have it. Well, today marks the 153rd anniversary of the 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution abolishing slavery being signed into law by President Abraham Lincoln on February 1st, 1865. Now, that may mean very little to you, but for my family... Uh, Immediate and extended family, this is a very significant day. Historically, we were descendants from slaves, and so this makes all the difference in the world. Two years after the president, President Lincoln declared slaves in designated areas of the South free with his Emancipation Proclamation during the uh, Civil War. But this uh, 13th Amendment extended to all 
then African, soon to be Americans in the country. The 13th Amendment remains on this day the only ratified amendment to the U.S. Constitution to have been signed into law by a sitting president. Under the rules of the Constitution, Lincoln's signature wasn't necessary for the passing of the bill, having already been passed by both Congress and the Senate prior to this. But the amendment was approved after a bitter civil war devastated the country, pitting the pro-slavery Confederate states of America, including Texas, Louisiana, Kentucky, against the mostly anti-slavery, mostly, not all, uh, union states, which included New York and Illinois. Well, President Lincoln had already signed the Emancipation Proclamation, freeing all the slaves in the Union. But in January, and that was in January 1863, but the 13th Amendment widened that scope to include the entirety of the United States, and that, of course, included the South. Well, speaking about slavery during his presidency, Lincoln had said in a speech in 1864, slavery is founded in the selfishness of man's nature, opposition to it in his love of justice. These principles are an eternal antagonism, and when brought into collision uh, with so fiercely as slavery ex- extension brings them, shocks and throes and convulsions must ceaselessly follow. Repeal the Missouri Compromise. Repeal the, all compromises. Repeal the Declaration of Independence. Repeal all past history. You still cannot repeal human nature. It still will be the abundance of man's heart that slavery extension is wrong. And out of the abundance of his heart, his mouth will continue to speak. Well, the United States was one of the last leading Western nations to abolish slavery, and the effects of the, on the country's brutal past are still being felt today, today marking that anniversary. Well, two students were shot and wounded, one critically inside a Los Angeles middle school classroom today. It was this morning police arrested a female student believed to be 12 years old. A 15-year-old boy hit in the head was transported to a trauma center in critical but stable condition. Again, we're talking about Los Angeles. According to fire department spokesman, a 15-year-old girl with a gunshot wound to the wrist was taken to a hospital in fair condition. Three other people ranging in age uh, 11 to 30 suffered minor cuts and scrapes, many attempting to escape. Police arrested the female student, recovered a gun after the shooting that happened just before 9 a.m. at Salvador B. Castro Middle School, west of the city. Downtown. Prime, uh, preliminary information indicated that the shooter was a 12 year old. Television news footage showed a girl being let out of the school in handcuffs a short time after the shooting while police cars blocked an intersection near the school and parents gathered at the street corner talking on their phones and waiting for word about their children, their middle school children. The school's campus remained on lockdown later in the morning but had been uh, declared safe after the 12 year old was taken into custody. The district has a policy there that requires every middle and high school campus to conduct daily random searches by metal detector wand at different hours of the school day for students in the sixth grade and up. Imagine that. Students having to go through this process from the sixth grade up. Officials haven't said whether students at the school were subject to any weapons searches on that day, on this morning. There were no metal detectors in the school, however. The school, Castro, has about 365 students in grades six through eight. Almost all are Hispanic and many from low-income families. At a school event last month where good attendance certificates were presented, the principal said the campus is becoming a destination for families who want a smaller school setting. The Los Angeles Times reported that the school uh, emphasizes um, long-term goals such as college and careers and uh, improved student behavior. The principal said, we have a new culture here. I love this school. We have really good kids here. It's the best kept secret 
in town. And I have no doubt that that's absolutely true. But this event certainly will mar that reputation. And one just uh, wonders what was in the heart and the mind of a 12 year old who somehow got her hands on a gun, shot a classmate uh, critically and wounded another. And then others uh, either were wounded by uh, the use of the gun or attempting to escape. It's just it's just shocking. President Trump is expected to declassify a controversial memo on purported surveillance abuses, uh, even as Democrats raise objections to um, uh, that edits were made to the uh, document since it was approved for release by a key committee. Those objections fueled a new round of partisan recrimination today. Nothing new there with House Democratic leader Nancy Pelosi firing off a letter to Speaker Paul Ryan demanding the chairman of that committee, Republican Devin Nunez, be removed. Um, but the objections don't appear to be uh, halting the publication plans. The release is likely to come sometime tomorrow morning. Uh, we have been told that the uh, changes made to the document were on the request of some members of the committee, Democrats on the committee and the FBI. They were clerical and not substantive in nature. But we'll never uh, we won't know until the document is actually released. There's a lot of back and forth as to just how. Um, how serious a damage this document may pay to the FBI and the Department of Justice. Uh, some suggesting this is going to be shocking. Others trying to tamp that down just a bit. But it does appear that the uh, documents will be released and the public will have the opportunity to judge for themselves uh, with the hope that it doesn't damage the functioning of the FBI, even if it exposes some areas where the FISA searches were abused, if in fact that's what uh, it reveals. 16 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Peter Brooks joins me shortly. He's a senior fellow at N- National Security Affairs at the Douglas and Sarah Allison Center for Foreign Policy. We're going to talk about national security ahead of the Winter Olympics, as well as other issues that may or may not have been mentioned during the State of the Union Address. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 20 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Later this hour, we're going to talk with Sheriff David Clark, his book, Cop Under Fire, Moving Beyond the Hashtags of Race, Crime, and Politics for a Better America. He's coming to Portland to be a part of the 2018 Freedom Rally. We'll give you all the important details. Well, the State of the Union address drew attention to immigration, domestic issues, But my next guest suggests that we not forget national security ahead of the Winter Olympics and North Korea, which is unquestionably the most pressing national security challenge we face, although not the only one. Well, he joins us now to talk about how the president did with regard to national security and what are what some of these other areas of uh, concern we ought to be focused on. Peter Brooks is senior fellow in national security affairs at the Douglas and Sarah Allison Center for Foreign Policy at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us. Good to be with you. Well, let me ask you about uh, how the president did, generally speaking, on national security issues and the State of the Union address. I was very pleased. Uh, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of things to cover. Uh, The speech went, what, some 90 minutes. You can't get to everything. You can't get into specific details. As I mentioned in my column in the Boston Herald, there were a lot of pressing domestic issues as well. But I think he I think he did very well. And of course, now we have to go forward with any sort of policy implementation uh, which is always the most challenging part of, uh, of foreign policy. Now, uh, uh, North Korea, as you point out, is unquestionably the most pressing national security challenge that we face. At, at present, they have uh, cozied up to South Korea. They're going to participate in the upcoming Olympic Games. Uh, but we should not be lulled into a sense of, well, maybe things are, are changing. What is What are your thoughts regarding North Korea and this current charm offensive and what comes next? 
Well, of course, you know, I was thinking about it, you know, probably a year ago, if we were talking about this, we'd probably say terrorism was, right, with the mm-hmm. Islamic State. But the president has done a, a terrific job of, of pulling the Islamic State apart. I mean, it's basically the caliphate is, has crumbled, but today it's North Korea and the progress they've made on their nuclear and ballistic and ballistic missiles. Now, you're right, uh, we, we have seen a charm offensive or a, a certain reduction in tensions, which could might just be temporary uh, for the Olympic Games, which start next Thursday in, in Korea. They really start Wednesday because of the time difference uh, for us. But, yeah, they're, they're, they've are uh, they kind of lowered the temperature a little bit, although there's reports that they may do some things like have a major military parade next week before the Olympics. So I think this is just a temporary respite, uh, which allowed them to, I think, get a public relations victory. I would certainly hope that this would be more than that, but – at this point, I think it's a public relations victory for North Korea, inserting their athletes into the Olympic Games. They will certainly get a lot of coverage uh, for North Korea. I'm not sure if it's going to be positive or negative in the world press because they're there. It's one of the big stories. But I think that, uh, you know, they're certainly, if they do this military exercise or military parade, they'll be telling us that, yeah, this is just temporary. We're going to put sportsmanship above uh, international politics, but I don't suspect it'll have any long-term effects. I would love it to be to be that way. I would love to be proved wrong, but I've been watching North Korea for a while, and I think we'll go back to the, the same challenges we had before this uh, charm offensive in, in advance of the Olympics. What do you think about uh, China and the, the tone or the absence of tone with regard to the role that China um, can, has, and must play in trying to uh, tamp down what's happening in North Korea? Well, you know, China has more influence in North Korea than any other country, but it doesn't have complete influence. Mm-hmm. And that's that's just the case. The Chinese would prefer that the North Koreans weren't stirring up this sort of trouble. I mean, you could be very cynical about it and say the Chinese feel like they benefit from a nuclear North Korea, but I think it, the instability that comes from that, the idea that there may be a war uh, is not good for China, at, you know, on a, on a humanitarian or a, a social or an economic level. So I think the Chinese are a bit unhappy about North Korea. They have some control, but they don't have complete control. They've done a more. President Trump has got them to do more than any previous president to deal with the deal with the problem. They probably could do more, but their interests, uh, Georgine, are just not the same as ours mm-hmm. on the Korean Peninsula. They don't necessarily want to see North and South reunited as under a a pro-Seoul or pro-South government that may mean American forces or, you know, a a Korea that is united with the United States or allied with the United States. They don't necessarily want to see U.S. forces north of the 38th parallel. We remember the Korean War and what happened, what China did about that. They could be worried about a civil war on the Korean Peninsula, loose nukes, humanitarian crisis, 22 million uh, refugees moving towards uh, moving towards China. So there's a lot of bad scenarios for China. You got to remember that we have an ocean that divides us. Even though we have lots of Americans who live in Seoul and we have lots of uh, troops, thirty thousand troops on the Korean Peninsula. There's a big distance between us and the Korean Peninsula, as opposed to China, which is attached uh, to the Korean Peninsula geographically. Now, Iran, the the um, the president has called into question the Iran nuclear deal. Um, there wasn't much mention of it in the speech that I recall. What what do we need to do at this point moving forward with regard to Iran, our relationship to it, and the Iran nuclear deal? Well, the president has laid it out. I mean, he basically refused to certify the Iran nuclear deal. 
uh, to the Congress, uh, which was uh, something that was required by law under the Obama administration. They said, you got to tell us that this deal is working. The president has refused to certify it twice, although he has not uh, changed the sanctions, reimposing sanctions. First time around, when he every he has to do it every four months. I'm sorry, every every uh, every four months. Yes, every 120 days, he basically turned it over to the Congress and said, "Hey, you need to do something about it. I'm not certifying it." They refused to do it. I'm not saying they refused; they were unable to do anything about it. And now he's basically said to the Europeans, who have tremendous economic interests in in Iran and are major players and part of the the P5 plus one, the permanent five members of Security Council plus plus Germany. Uh, members of that signed the Iran nuclear deal. He says, look, uh, you need to do something about this. You need to tighten it up. We need to get rid of sunset provisions and we need to include uh, ballistic missiles. And if you don't, I'm out of the deal. Um, so that's, you know, that's the next couple of months. And we see where we go from uh, we see where we go from there. Anything that you thought the president left out that should have been mentioned in the State of the Union? Well, look, I mean, there's lots of things. I'd like to see an, an entire speech about national security because that's what I work on. Mm-hmm. I think he did a good job. Uh, I think he touched on a lot of the things that I mentioned in my in my column that came out the morning of. Uh, you know, he talked about ISIS, uh, he, but he, and I think he rightfully said there's still work to be done. We have to remember our reading it into it, but we have to remember the mistakes of 2011 when the Obama administration pulled out U.S. forces with, on an arbitrary timeline, said, hey, I just want to be out of there. And we saw the rise of ISIS, that which came from the resurgence of al-Qaeda in Iraq. So I think, you know, the idea, you know, Syria, he didn't get into that. I mean, he just didn't have the time. I'm sure, you know, he's thinking about these sort of things. Uh, you know, he mentioned Russia and China as major challenges to the United States as, as great powers, which is the evolution. We're moving more away from terrorism. I'm not saying we're out of the woods completely on that. But because of taking apart ISIS, we've we've reduced, I think, the threat for the moment. But now we're talking, if you look at the national security strategy, they talk about great power challenges, which is Russia and China. Um, so I, I think he did. A, I think he did a really, really good job with the time he had and the issues he had to uh, he had to uh, deal with. But, um, you know, obviously, on a day to day basis, the U.S. government and his administration is working on other challenges that uh, didn't get to the level of being mentioned in the uh, State of the Union address. How optimistic are you that he's going to be able to get the funds that he wants for the military? Yeah, that's another issue. I actually forgot about that. Um, you know, the defense spending, he talked about it, and I think he's he embraces Ronald Reagan's view, and as others have as well, uh, that uh, peace through strength. If you have a very strong military, that people will decide not to uh, start a fight with you, and I think that's just human nature. Um, and our military has been worked very hard. You know, we've been in Afghanistan now for almost 17 years. Um, you know, it's just if you think about if you're driving a car or any sort of piece of equipment or anything along that line, 17 years, it's you know, it, it gets a lot of wear and tear. And uh, our military, not including as well as the people, have taken a lot of wear and tear and we need to recapitalize it. And we have other challenges. We're not talking about the most likely situation is maybe something like the Korean Peninsula or Iran or Russia or China, which is very different than the counterinsurgency operation mm-hmm. we've been working uh, for, for many years now. So we need to have that capability. A, a war is come-as-you-are affair. Um, sometimes there's a buildup, but often that's the case, and, and um, so we need to be ready for those sort of situations. Absolutely. Peter Brooks, thank you so much for joining us. 
Thanks for having me. Appreciate it very much. Again, Peter Brooks is Senior Fellow of National Security Affairs at the Douglas and Sarah Allison Center for Foreign Policy at the Heritage Foundation. Excuse me. Up next, we're going to talk with uh, Sheriff David Clark. He's the author of Cop Under Fire, Moving Beyond the Hashtags of Race, Crime and Politics for a Better America. And he's also going to be one of the uh, uh, tremendous speakers at the upcoming 2018 Freedom Rally. More details when we return. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, from TV studios of Fox News to the stage at the Republican National Convention, Milwaukee County Sheriff David Clark Jr. speaks passionately on controversial issues, and that's earned him both fans and critics all across the country. I happen to be in the fan category. Well, now in his latest book, Cop Under Fire, Moving Beyond the Hashtags of Race, Crime and Politics for a Better America, Sheriff Clark navigates the choppy waters of race, religion, politics and patriotism while he shares how America can once again be a great nation under God. Written in his characteristically no-nonsense style, Cop Under Fire examines the ways in which America has become increasingly polarized with growing racial tension, animosity toward law enforcement, government corruption, and disregard for the Constitution with no easy answer in sight. But Sheriff Clark knows where we must begin. We must stop blaming our others, rather. Look at our problems with open eyes. Take ownership of our families, community, and country, and turn to God. Uh, D- David Clark was elected to serve as Milwaukee County Sheriff in 2002. He served in the position for four consecutive terms. He was honored with the 2013 Sheriff of the Year Award from the Constitutional Sheriffs and Peace Officers Association. And in 2016, he was named Law Enforcement Leader of the Year by the Federal Law Enforcement Officers Association Foundation. He is a graduate of the prestigious FBI National Academy of Quantico, Virginia, and received an MA in Security Studies from the U.S. Naval Postgraduate School, Center for Homeland Defense and Security. He's a regular and frequent guest on the Fox News Network. Sheriff Clark and his wife, Julie, live in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And I'm delighted that Sheriff Clark is going to be here in the Portland area as one of the uh, presenters of the upcoming event to the 2018 Freedom Rally. Sheriff Clark, it is such an honor to have you with us today. Well, it's my pleasure. appreciate you having me on, and uh, hello to your listeners. Uh, let me let me just uh, invite you to tell our listeners a little bit about your um, your upbringing. I, I saw so many similarities in your father and mine. Uh, it, it explains, I suppose, a lot of the kind of disciplined and contributing member of society that you are because of the the family that you grew up in. Tell us a little bit of your background. Yeah, that was very important, and it's something that uh, as I moved through forty years of law enforcement. Uh, if I could put my finger on one thing in terms of what has happened to the black community, it's the fact that the family has become fractured. Mm-hmm. There are some contributing factors. But in my own family, a uh, two-parent family, a loving mom and dad. My mom was a stay-at-home mom for most of our young lives, raising the kids, instilling values, uh, virtues. You know, virtue, as you know, is a redeeming quality. People aren't born with those. They have to be instilled with it. So she was around full-time to see to that. While my dad went to work, my dad served. Uh, United States Army. He was an airborne ranger. He had several combat jumps under fire in Korea. Uh, he grew up and became a man in the military. And the military taught him about discipline, which he passed on to me. Uh, strict disciplinary requirements in my household. Uh, when my dad said something, you did it. You didn't question it. There was no discussion. There was no debate. And, you know, that taught me a lot in terms of uh, the discipline that I think is needed as you move through life to do things like complete school. You know, you look at the school dropout rate, the school failure in the black community, and it's, it takes discipline to stay in school. It's hard. It's tedious. You know, sometimes it gets boring, but you still have to stick with it. So 
you know, it's, it was that upbringing. And by the way, it was lower middle class. My mom and dad didn't have a lot of money, uh, but they, they did the best they could, sent us to um, uh, Catholic schools because they felt that, that installation of faith as a virtue would be important as well. And they also felt that that would be a, a better education. You are known to speak in ways that other leaders in the black community have failed. And that is has been a real frustration for me as a member of the black community to hear leaders that are routinely um, looked to for answers and comments on events that have taken place. You've been very outspoken about the Black Lives Matter movement. And as a member of law enforcement, you've been very clear about the direction that we ought to go. Let's talk a little bit about this, this notion of cops under fire and the lack of respect that we're currently seeing with law enforcement uh, and incidents that have occurred that whether or not they've been mischaracterized have raised concerns within the black community. Sure, without a doubt. But let me go back to something you said uh, a minute ago when you talked about uh, the way I speak and, and the, the, the message that I bring, uh, look, I think it's important because with all the problems that we have in the black community, and, and some of these are parallel with the problems we're having in America as well. I don't just look at the black community, mm-hmm. but, you know, my community is, is, is hurting uh, probably more so than, than many others. But um, we, we, have, we have mixed messages. We have bad messages. There's no plurality of voices. And that's what I I say, I don't tell people, hey, listen to me, I'm the only one that knows what's going on, I'm right. I don't say that, I say there are plurality of voices, but mine within the black community by other race baiters tends to be uh, drowned out. I think that some of the problems that beset the black community are self-inflicted. When you look at fatherless homes, you look at these young men having uh, kids at a very early age with multiple women and then not being around to fulfill their fatherly duties. So you have young men growing up without fathers, it's been devastated. When you look at drug and alcohol abuse, devastating. When you look at uh, questionable lifestyle choices like joining gangs and quitting school, uh, those are self-inflicted pathologies. So I always remind people, and I would do this any race, any, no matter what demographic, when there's a problem, look in the mirror first. Look in the mirror and ask that person looking back at you, what could you be doing different to affect a better outcome? But what the left has taught uh, uh, many in the black community is to look outward, find somewhere to deflect. Don't blame yourself. It's not your fault. It's somebody else's fault. It's Whitey's fault. It's the rich man's fault. It's this person's fault. No, it's not. You know, there may be some contributing factors with things like discrimination. um, But you start by looking in the mirror first. And again, you say, what could I be doing? That guy looking back at you, what could you be doing different to affect a better outcome? And that's not popular among the race baiters, because they always want to blame somebody else for somebody else's predicament. Well, it can be politically um, very useful to, to do that because it gives you political capital. It gives you a position of of uh, leadership. And, and oftentimes it's fomented for that very purpose. Now, what do you say in response to concerns raised about police brutality, particularly within the black community, which uh, gave us the Black Lives Matter movement? Yeah, let me use the model that I just said that I use and I encourage people to use. Uh, by looking in the mirror first. And I would say, why are there so many interactions between law enforcement and young black men? And the answer is simple, criminal behavior, nothing more, nothing less. And so what I ask is, why are our youth seem to be so predisposed to choosing criminal behavior and questionable lifestyle choices than they are to, let's say, uh, learning how to read, spending more time on, on, on your homework, staying in school? And because of those increased interactions, whenever you have a lot of human interaction, you have the potential for conflict. 
the thing is, the law enforcement officer is a figure of authority. And when you grow up not respecting authority like I did, you know, my first authority figure was, it wasn't the cop, it was my dad. Then I passed that on to other authority figures in my world. My teachers were authority figures. The neighbor was an authority figure. Any adult was an authority figure. And so I, I'm, you know, able to look at, at the law enforcement officer. And I tell this to young black men, by the way, it's just an authority figure. You may not like him. You may not like the way he's talking to you. He may be talking to you rude officials or whatever, but there's a process that we can deal with that later on. It's not resisting arrest. It's not running from the police. It's not trying to disarm the police. It's not um, uh, fleeing the police. It's obey the lawful command and we'll grieve this thing later. But, you know, when when you grow up without that virtue of discipline and you have no authority figure uh, and you don't know respect for authority, what you're going to do is you're going to resist. And I'll tell you right now, in an interaction on the street with a cop, 99% of the time, you're going to lose that fight. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to continue our conversation. Again, we're talking with Sheriff David Clark. His latest book is Cop Under Fire. It's a great uh, book that challenges readers to think uh, about the issues that we uh, currently face in constructive ways. The subtitle, Moving Beyond the Hashtags of Race, Crime, and Politics for a Better America. Judge uh, Sheriff Clark is going to be in the Portland area for the 2018 Freedom Rally. That's coming up this Saturday at the Holiday Inn Airport. When we come back, I'll give you more details. You need to be there. You need to raise your voice to express your values in a place like this one, Portland, Oregon. And we'll give you those details in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking this afternoon with Sheriff David Clark. He's coming to the Portland area for the 2018 Freedom Rally sponsored by Oregon Liberty Alliance. It's an opportunity for those of us with conservative worldview to have our voices heard, our views and values respected. The 2018 Freedom Rally is a place where that voice can be amplified and show that uh, conservatism is alive and well in Oregon. And it is alive and well right here. Now, it's coming up this um, this Saturday at Holiday Inn Airport. To register, you can go online to OregonLibertyAlliance.com. Again, that's OregonLibertyAlliance.com or phone 503-257-0444. 503-257-0444. Now, in addition to Sheriff Clark, uh, Dana Loesch is going to be speaking, Joseph and Franco. In fact, we'll talk with him as well. Congressman Greg Walden, it's going to be a great event and you need to be there. So all the details can be found at the website, OregonLibertyAlliance.com. Now we're talking with uh, Sheriff David Clark. He's the author most recently of Cop Under Fire, Moving Beyond the Hashtag of Race, Crime and Politics for a Better America. Are you optimistic about the future of the country, given the challenges that we currently face and an unwillingness to engage in civil conversation about the, the serious challenges that, we, uh, that we're facing? Look, I'm very optimistic. The United States of America is a very resilient country. This country has faced many defining moments, periods of time, periods of change. You look at the American Revolution. You look at the Civil War. You look at the World Wars. You look at the Great Depression. You look at the the turbulent 60s. You look at 9-11. We've always bounced back. The reason we've always bounced back is because we had people at NEN realize that the best interest of America has to come before our own best interest. And now that that uh, Donald Trump is president of the United States. I'm even more optimistic. We can see in a short period of time what he's done just to lift people's spirits. Consumer confidence is up. I think people, and because this stuff doesn't turn on a dime, but I think over time, over the next uh, three years now, people will start to feel better about themselves and their place in America. And I'm talking about transcending all kind of uh, all different kinds of uh, uh, demographics. I think the subtitle of my book, Beyond the Hashtags, 
of race, crime, and politics is very appropriate because that's what it seems, you know, that we're focused on almost 24-7 in the news cycle. There is a way out of this. I talk about it in the book, which mm-hmm. is why I want to encourage people to get it, Cop Under Fire. I don't want to give too much of it away, but uh, it'll allow people a deeper dive into the way that, that I think, the way that I've arrived at the conclusions that I have. I, I make it clear in the book. Look, I don't know everything. I don't need to know everything. I'm not the smartest guy in the world. I don't need to be the smartest guy in the world. But I have a view from a very unique perspective of 40 years in law enforcement. What does that mean? 40 years on the street dealing with human beings who have problems in their lives, uh, who are facing issues that they need help in in solving. And you, the first thing you do is you call a cop, right? Whenever there's a problem, what do you do? Call 911, call a cop. So I've had an opportunity to, to show up and empathize with people uh, in their predicament and in their situation. That's why I say I think it's a unique view of the world. One of the chapters in your book is titled, God is not the enemy, but he's being attacked. Um, but also changing the culture is a matter of faith, not politics. Most of us are looking to uh, politics as uh, somehow providing or presenting the solution. But you suggest there's a, a deeper problem that needs a deeper solution. Sure. Politics doesn't solve problems. People solve problems. And most times, those problems are solved more effectively on people's uh, own volition. In other words, in somebody's life, you have to be determined uh, that your life is going to be different. You're going to engage in some things that are going to assist you in leading uh, a fulfilled life. You know, when I talk about faith, I mentioned in the beginning of this conversation uh, that my mom and dad sent us to uh, Catholic schools to have that uh, element, that virtue or redeeming quality of faith instilled in us. I rely on that faith constantly. I pray every day. You know, I don't pray for stuff. I pray for things like uh, empathy. I, I pray for things like wisdom. I pray, pray for things like uh, understanding, patience, discipline. Those are the things I, I pray for because those things help me through, um, you know, this, this very political environment that I live in now. And so uh, I think God has been marginalized. God would become too much of a secular society. Mm-hmm. You know, this constitution that we, we, we love and dear uh, or hold dear um, was Christian based. It based. It was based on Christian values. There's nothing wrong with that. And, and I think that this secular, this push towards secularism by the left to marginalize God, you can't talk about God in the public square. You know, if you're a political person, you mention God or religion. Next thing you know, you're under some ethics violation or somebody suing you. I've been sued, by the way, for uh, uh, First Amendment um, uh, freedom of religion. And, but, you know, I wear my, my, my religion on my sleeve, not to the exclusion of any other faith. But I wear mine. I'm not afraid to talk about it. I answer to a higher power in the end. I don't care what happens down here on earth in terms of me being scorned because of my faith. But in the end, where it really counts, that's why I want our good God to look and say, you know, David, faithful servant, you fought the good fight. You weren't perfect, but uh, come on into the kingdom of heaven. Hmm. Well done. We are so thrilled that you're coming to the Portland area. And I should mention that you're going to do a book signing at the event on Saturday as well. So people will have an opportunity to pick up Cop Under Fire. And I would highly recommend that you do that. It chronicles uh, the sheriff's uh, childhood, the challenges he and countless other officers face in law enforcement today, and some broader solutions to the issues that we uh, face as a culture. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with uh, with me today. And we look forward to hearing from you on Saturday. I look forward to being there. Thank you so much. Thank you.
Again, uh, Sheriff David Clark is the former sheriff of Milwaukee County, Wisconsin. He has uh, enjoyed a long and illustrious career in law enforcement that spans nearly four decades. He's a frequent guest commentator for national news programs like CBS Evening News, CNN Newsroom, and Fox News. Earlier this year, he uh, released his best-selling book, uh, Cop Under Fire. It chronicles uh, his life and the challenges we face as a nation. Also presenting at the upcoming 2018 Freedom Rally this Saturday is Dana Loesch. She hosts her award-winning radio show, The Conservative Alternative, and is a well-known political commentator. She appears regularly on Fox News, ABC, CNN, HBO's Real Time with Bill Maher, and many other programs. She is a national spokesperson for the National Rifle Association and speaks regularly on the subject of new media and grassroots. Joseph Infranco will be speaking at the uh, uh, rally that's coming up, uh, sponsored again by the Oregon Liberty Alliance. He serves as senior counsel with the Alliance Defending Freedom and senior vice president of Alliance uh, Coordination Team. He works with thousands of attorneys all across the country, and he's tried more than 100 cases successfully and participated on many religious liberty cases. He joined ADF in 2003 and is admitted to the bars of the U.S. Supreme Court, New York State, Second and Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, three federal district courts, and the U.S. Tax Court. And finally, Congressman Greg Walden. He'll be, um, he represents, rather, Oregon's second congressional district, which includes central, southern, and eastern Oregon, and he's uh, served in that capacity since 1999. He was elected for two terms as chairman of the National Republican uh, Congressional Committee, which, uh, he, with his leadership, led to historic Republican majorities in the House and the uh, uh, the Senate. In uh, 2016, he was selected as chairman of the full Congressional Committee on Energy and Commerce. All four will be presenting at the 2018 Freedom Rally um, at Holiday Inn here in Portland. Registration opens at 11, and you can call and uh, pre-register at 503-257-0444. You can also learn more about the rally at OregonLibertyAlliance.com. OregonLibertyAlliance.com. Now, the the Alliance consists of the Oregon Family Council, Oregon Right to Life, Oregon Anti-Crime Alliance, Parents Education Association, Oregon Women's League, Taxpayer Defense Project, Common Sense for Oregon, and Taxpayers Association of Oregon. Oregon needs to hear your voice, your views, and your values. And the 2018 Freedom Rally is the place where that voice can be amplified. So uh, it's an opportunity to demonstrate that conservatism is alive and well in Oregon. Again, that's coming up Saturday, February the third to show your support for life, common sense government, family values, fiscal responsibility, and of course the First Amendment. They're going to be top-notch speakers, uh, catered lunch, um, and a chance to network with hundreds of other conservatives from around the state. Uh, we'll make the day a day to remember the Oregon Freedom Rally. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on ninety-three point nine KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. This hour, we're going to talk with Pastor Scott Gilchrist about the Romans Project. We'll tell you all about that in just a few moments. We'll also talk with Matt Tallman. He's uh, going to talk with us about the short-term mission connection that's coming up in a couple of weeks. We'll give you all the important details for that as well. Portions of our program today are brought to you by Liberty Coin and Currency. Now, as promised, I want to give away a pair of tickets to the Johnny W. Comedy Night at East Hill Church on March the 10th, 7 o'clock p.m. If you're looking for a fun uh, evening to spend where there's clean comedy, I want to let you know that uh, we're going to be sponsoring Johnny W. for a comedy night at East Hill, and we want to give away a pair of tickets right now. In fact, we'll give those tickets to caller number one. 
Caller number one, 503-786-9390, 503-786-9390. Now, we weren't live on the air yesterday. We will be tomorrow. We'll give away two pair of tickets tomorrow. So um, uh, we'll take care of that. By the way, the tickets are going to be emailed to the winner. So please uh, let us know of your email address. If you don't have one, that could be problematic. So just keep that in mind. Again, 503 786 9390. You know, I am so grateful as I look back over the course of my Christian life that I've had the opportunity to be taught by good, solid Bible teachers. But that is unfortunately not the case in many places around the world. Much of the world's evangelical church leaders have little access to solid theological resources, let alone training. Quality seminaries can be hundreds of miles away, travel can be expensive and sometimes dangerous, computers and internet access, even electricity are luxuries many cannot afford, and yet they are called to lead congregations. With new congregations forming daily, and I'm, I'm referencing the Romans Pro- Project's uh, webpage, the global church is growing fast, but traditional methods for equipping church leaders, it's difficult to keep up the pace. Well, joining us to talk about the Romans Project is Pastor Scott Gilchrist. He, of course, is a pastor at Southwest Bible Church and the teacher of the downtown Bible class. And this is an exciting uh, project that is training pastors in Africa and Asia in ways that are, are really exciting. So I wanted to give Pastor Scott an opportunity uh, to join us once again to talk about the Romans Project. Welcome, Pastor Scott. Thanks, Georgine. Great to be with you. I feel like we almost need to set up a little office here for uh, for you, so <laughs> you and I can talk more easily. But uh, I appreciate your joining us this evening. Before we talk about what the Romans Project is, let's talk about how it began and what its uh, what its purpose was intended to be. Yeah, we we launched it actually just eight years ago, <clears throat> January this month of, uh, or well, I guess now we're February, but uh, 2010, a lifelong missionary to Africa uh, who was nearing the end of his his life. Really, he was uh, he had cancer and he he'd been part of our ministry uh, for his whole career. Really, we sent him out. Uh, he had vision and passion to see pastors equipped uh, in the way you just mentioned uh, and get them in the scripture. And so he challenged some, just a handful of men, three, three key pastors that he had discipled. He challenged them to give themselves to the study of Romans and uh, specifically by reading it repeatedly 20 times and actually transcribing it, just copying it into a journal. And then when they'd completed that, he would give them an MP3 player that had uh, my exposition of Romans on it. And I had taught through Romans uh, a few years earlier in 109 messages. So it was a pretty thorough teaching of Romans. And it was just amazing what took place. Uh, It shouldn't have surprised me because that's exactly how I got my my Christian life was transformed, really, Mm. was being challenged to do just that, to give myself to the book of Romans. Uh, And these men just started to, to, uh, they were transformed and their ministries were transformed. And they were reading and writing and listening to the teaching of Romans. And so we have... uh, it's gone from there, and we challenge men to read, write, listen, and proclaim. And it's basically that simple. You know, Jesus said, if you'll abide in my word, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. 
And uh, we found that many men just are waiting for someone to give them some rails to run on and to challenge them. And as they started to get a hold of Romans, and really I should say Romans, the great systematic proclamation of the gospel, mm-hmm. got a hold of them. Yeah. <laughs> Why they uh, they it changed the whole way they looked at their ministry, and they began to want to teach their congregations the gospel through Romans. And uh, so it's gone from there. Well, let me ask you a question that some of our listeners might be wondering, because we may have new believers who have yet to read the the. Uh, the book of Romans and others who are familiar with it, but maybe have not given themselves to it in the way that you've just described. Why the book of Romans? Some might suggest, well, the gospel of John would be the place to start. Why the book of Romans? You know, that's that's a great question. And wherever Romans has been studied in church history, you will find that God uses it to transform people's grasp of his grace, his righteousness, his love, the cross, why the cross was necessary, uh, just the great fundamentals. In fact, someone said every major doctrine of the whole Bible is found in this little epistle. I say little, it's really 20 pages. So it's very, it's it's a very doable portion of God's Word. You can read it out loud uh, in an hour, and but you get a, a thorough, systematic grasp of the gospel. I believe that uh, Paul, you know, it's one, it, he'd never been to Rome when he wrote Romans, so he had no local issues to uh, deal with or any, any side issues. Or he just kind of polished this epistle, humanly speaking. He just said, I think he sat out to write out the gospel in a systematic way, because in his day, all roads led to Rome, mm-hmm. and uh, he knew they would, you know this was the key to the Roman Empire. So I think God sovereignly uh, had him write this book, and has used it through the the centuries uh, just in just that way. Now let's talk about the impact that this project of exposing pastors and challenging them to immerse themselves in the Book of Romans, the impact that it's had on them throughout uh, Africa and Asia. Yeah, it's really, it's amazing because uh, it has spread to first hundreds and now thousands of pastors uh, as word of mouth. This uh, Thousands have completed the reading and writing and are now listening to the teaching. And uh, they write us and they tell us, and it's it's very, very encouraging uh, to, to read. Some of them uh, come to really grasp the gospel for the first time. Uh, I'm reading Julius uh, from Ghana. He wrote, after reading the book of Romans, I am now fully convinced that I am saved by grace through faith in Christ. Mm. Nothing more or less. This knowledge has changed my method of preaching. I'll say, (laughs) (laughs) you know, when you get hold of this for the first time, perhaps, maybe many pastors are cloudy in their understanding. And then others, uh, it transforms them. They're, they're, they're already understanding the gospel, but they see how it's laid out in a systematic way. And it isn't typical in Africa or Asia or actually in America. Pulpits don't typically teach the Bible. And I'm convinced that the one great need is for uh, churches, pastors, pulpits, to expound the Bible. God gave us a perfect tool. And so many of these men have heard topical messages. They've been trained in what they see on TV sometimes. 
and many of them, as you mentioned in introducing me, have had little or no training. And so they have very fragmented sermons because their own understanding mm-hmm. is fragmented. But when they start to just see it modeled, how you can teach through the book of Romans or any other book, we have several other books that we uh, encourage why they can uh, it transforms their congregation. Mm. We're going to continue our conversation. We're talking with uh, Pastor Scott Gilchrist, and we're talking about the Romans Project. By the way, you can learn more at romansproject.org. Quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back 21 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. We're talking about the Romans Project. It is so simple, and yet it's having an extraordinary impact on pastors and church leaders all across the globe. It's designed to equip pastors to become authentic, Christ-centered men filled with the Word of God, walking in truth, being godly examples, and expounding the Word clearly and accurately in equipping their congregations to become God. Men, women, and children of the Word to the glory of God. We're talking with Pastor Scott Gilchrist about the Romans Project. Now, how do you connect, or maybe it's the other way around, how do pastors connect with the Romans Project? As we mentioned, we're, we're talking about uh, broad swaths of Africa and uh, some Asian countries as well. Well, uh, it has been word of mouth, and then I would say that it has been very, very organic. Uh, as we have, God has raised up some some godly leaders who have just been evangelistic in their fervor to take this to the next country. And in each place where we've been, uh, we're in actually 20 nations now. Uh, these men have just given themselves to encouraging other pastors to do to do this. Uh, they they will tell us this transformed my life, my ministry, and I so want other pastors in my country to know this. So it crosses denominational lines. It crosses, uh, you know, barriers because, after all, we might have our differences, but Romans is for everybody. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Now, um, for listeners who've just joined us, describe again what the pastors do uh, in in reading and immersing themselves in Romans, and then the follow-up. Yeah, they they're challenged they we will give them and we're able to do this for $25 a player we'll give them a player uh that gives them the teaching of Romans as well as many other books of the Bible uh, the expositions of these books if they will read Romans 20 times and copy it out by hand and when they do then we give them this little MP3 player and as you were mentioning in your lead up uh, you know, it's driven by a AAA battery. It's like about the size of a, a lipstick tube. And and uh, I'm I'm looking at Pastor Moses from Liberia here, at Rhodus, and said, I have enjoyed it so much, and I am teaching it in my church. He's a rural pastor, and many of these guys are. Mm-hmm. He said, everywhere I go, people see me with the earphones in and ask me about it. He carries it in his pocket and listens to God's Word being taught. And that's one of the best ways to learn how to teach God's Word is to have it, just w- listen to it taught. And so then they they just naturally start to teach what they're learning to their congregations, and uh, and the same process occurs then in the congregation. 
Well, that is uh, so thrilling. And my understanding is this pocket-sized MP3 player not only um, is a complete exposition of Romans, there are over 100 messages, but there are also messages uh, from other books of the Bible as well. Yeah, Genesis, Exodus, John, Luke, Ephesians, uh, 1 Peter. We have translated, we're translating the messages, and we're, we have translated into nine African languages, Swahili, French, uh, Hausa. And so we just got a letter in from the Congo where there's so much uh, bloodshed and yes. danger. But our director uh, lives in Rwanda, and he has made trip after trip in there. And uh, he came back and said over 146 pastors had finished uh, the reading of Romans, and he got, he brought them their players, and he said what was amazing is that many of them, I think he said over 70 of them, had also completed Luke. And we encourage that. That's really what I do. And what I've done since since I first studied Romans is I take another book on and read it repeatedly, just immerse myself in a book of the Bible. And uh, so we're challenging men to, when they finish Romans, uh, go to John, and when they finish John, go to Luke, and and uh, when they finish Luke, we we we've done the life of Peter and First Peter, and so we want them to just have a lifelong. And they'll often say that uh, they'll say this is like having a mobile Bible Bible Institute or seminary, and they're so thrilled that uh, as you said, they're so far from uh, the ability to get the kind of teaching we have at our disposal here. Uh, it's just been a life-changing yes. thing for them to be able to take on various books of the Bible, and really they have a lifetime of of uh, challenge ahead. Well, and of course, as pastors and leaders, they are charged with equipping the saints to do the work of the ministry. So when you think about the uh, their devotion to Scripture and then teaching that to their congregations, who then uh, go and do likewise in terms of, of living out what the gospel uh, proclaims. It's really exciting to think of such a simple thing having such a major impact. Now, I would imagine that some of our listeners are wondering, now, would I benefit from uh, immersing myself in a book of the Bible? You mentioned that early on in your Christian life, uh, you immersed yourself in, in the Romans, and it had a real impact on your life. Can you talk a little bit about the virtue of just studying the Bible in that way in order to fully embrace and understand what's being taught? Yeah, the Bible's a big book, and most of us kind of have a little bit of knowledge around, and, and as we grow it, it can seem overwhelming. But he wrote it as a library, and so any book of the Bible will will just give up wonderful riches if we'll spend time in it, abiding in it. And many, many men in past generations uh, advocated repetitive reading of the same book, and I was blessed to be challenged that way when I was just uh, about 19 or 20. And it did transform my whole way of thinking about the Bible because I, I began to feel like I could really understand and think through with the author of Romans or John or Hebrews or Ephesians uh, to where I really understood the context. And, you know, Jesus used to say that regularly. He said, haven't you read? And sometimes we neglect the very, the very foundational thing, which is, is reading. And repetitive reading excuse me, is uh, something that very few, I find even in America, very few have really done that. So I challenge men all the time uh, that are in the pastorate and, and just lay people, you name it, 
uh, I challenge men and women, and they often come back to me after they have, I say, just isolate in one book and uh, spend time in that book. And when you finish it, read it again. And when you finish it, read it yet again. And some of these uh, comments that we get from the pastors in Africa are exactly what we've always seen. I say always because this has been something I've been doing for decades now in America. And people come back and say, that's so simple, but I'd never thought of that. Mm -hmm. And they just fall in love with the portion of Scripture that God is using. And it really ought not to surprise us. Even in Romans, uh, you know, Paul wrote, after he kind of finished the argument of Romans, he said, now don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And I really believe we need to have our minds uh, reprogrammed. And God gave us this tool, the Holy Spirit uh, is able to use the sword of the Spirit as we give ourselves to it and just read it. And uh, so I, I encourage your, your listeners, you know, uh, take, take Romans and uh, sit down. And if you, can't, if you can't give up 45 minutes to an hour, uh, which is what it takes to read in one sitting, uh, break it in half. It breaks naturally in half, chapters 1 through 8. And then the next day, read 9 through 16. But do that for a month daily. And uh, it will transform your understanding of Romans and hence of God. And uh, to know his grace and his faithfulness and the love that God demonstrated when he sent his only son to, to die for us when we were enemies of his. If he didn't spare his own son, he'll freely give him up for us. So anything else we need, you know. And I just, I think of, of uh, the, you can't, you just, it's inexhaustible as you give yourself to a book of the Bible like this. Well, I know that our listeners would probably like to learn more and find out how to support the work of the Romans Project. What's the best way for them to do that? Well, if you if they're on the net, I just encourage them to go to our to our website, RomansProject.org. Uh, they can always get in touch with us through the mail too at Downtown Bible Class, um, and our address. I have to look it up, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's uh, PO Box one nine one nine one. Portland, 97280. They can always call the station here, too, if they need that information. Well, I am... RomansProject.org is a real simple way to learn more about the project. So appreciate the the work that you are doing here, certainly among us, but also abroad as well. Thank you so much, Pastor Scott. Well, thank you, Georgina. It's always great to be with you. Have a good night. Good night. Up next, we're going to talk with Matt Talman. Did you know that Short-Term Mission Connection is coming up in a couple of weeks? Well, you need to know. We'll make sure you have all the important details. Up next, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, for those of you who have attended Mission Connection, you probably already know that coming up on the 23rd and 24th is the um, the upcoming Short-term mission connection, defy the ordinary. There's also a standards of excellence uh, pre-conference that we'll tell you about in just a moment. But I wanted to make sure for those of you who really want to uh, focus in on short-term missions that you're aware of this conference that will be uh, focused on that subject alone. Joining us to talk about it is Matt Tallman. He's the director of, he's the outreach pastor, I should say, at Open Arms International. He's also an adjunct faculty member at George Fox University. And I'm so grateful that you're with us today to make sure we know all the important 
important details about the upcoming short-term mission connection. Welcome. Well, thanks, Georgine. And uh, yeah, we're really excited uh, to uh, be uh, hosting this conference at Eastridge Church on uh, the 23rd and 24th of February. And uh, uh, we have two excellent plenary speakers, Mike McDonald from Westside Church in Portland uh, and uh, director of the Here to the Cry Missions Ministry, uh, uh, reaching all over the world. And we, we also have Reed Sanders from Salem, Oregon, who uh, I believe used to work with Luis Palau mm-hmm. yes. and uh, sends out teams all over the world as well. Um, and um, so they're both really uh, well-versed in short-term missions. Um, and uh, we also have, uh, I think, probably over a dozen, maybe about 15 different workshops, uh, uh, you know, covering everything from, um, you know, the latest software in uh, helping to organize teams uh, for short-term missions to risk assessment to how to be uh, uh, the best team for your host, uh, cons- uh, taking in cultural considerations and a variety of other subjects. Uh, but we're really looking forward to having a great conference this year. I'm I'm excited about the fact that people who are un- undertaking short-term missions are recognized. It's not just a matter of pulling a few people together, hopping on a plane and showing up somewhere. But there are some logistic concerns and to make sure that when you're on the ground, you're serving well. When you come back, there's, uh, there's good follow-up. So let's talk about um, why mission connection, the short-term mission connection, is important for those who want to d- do more than just have, uh, you know, a notch in their belt that they've traveled abroad, but really want to do a Effective ministry. Why is short-term mission connection and uh, taking this uh, concerted time to focus on it important? I think it's important, Georgine, because uh, well, I think for a couple reasons. Um, one, we you know we want the the people going, the team members, have, to have the best possible experience mm-hmm. uh, they they can to make it meaningful for them. Um, but also to help them to understand, you know, the cultural differences, the the, the preparation that should take place in advance, uh, as you mentioned, the follow up that can help them in their own walk with Christ uh, as as they come back. Um, but also, you know, we want it to make, we want to make it as strategic as possible, as effective as possible, and as helpful as possible for the partners that they work with overseas. Um, because, uh, you know, sometimes, uh, and I hear about them all the time, different stories where where there wasn't good communication, mm-hmm. good um, understanding between the two groups uh, that led to some challenges or sometimes in some cases more, more harm than help uh, when short-term teams really didn't understand the culture or understand how they could serve best their host. And what a difference it can make when you are prepared um, spiritually yeah. prepared yeah. as well as practically prepared for the service that you are rendering rather than arriving, becoming a burden. And when they're waving at you as you're leaving, it's not, boy, am I glad they're gone. It's what a rich time we had together and we're encouraged in our faith. And and that's really our goal to, you know, provide the best resources and training possible to to make that happen. Now let's uh, let's get to the nuts and bolts. During Mission Connection, we know there was a little bit of change in the way it was conducted. You had to pre-register in order to attend. Tell us what our listeners need to know to attend a short-term Mission Connection on the uh, 23rd and 24th. Yes. Yeah, all you need to do is go to the Mission Connection 
website at missionconnection.com. Uh, and there, there will be a link for short-term mission connection. You register there. Uh, in fact, uh, we, ha- we still have early bird registration available until tomorrow. Uh, I think the cost for the early bird registration, I believe, uh, is um, $49. But I know it's $10 cheaper than it will be after February 1st. <laughs> And um, so it um, um, so it definitely, if you can register by tomorrow, it will save you money, and, uh, and help us in, in you know prepare as best as possible for the number of people coming. Now, so. uh, short-term mission connection. The doors open at five o'clock on Friday, February thirty, or excuse me, twenty-third, with registration. Mm-hmm. And there will be exhibits, which is always very instructive. There's a plenary session at seven, and then uh, there's the first uh, bank of workshops at eight o'clock, nine o'clock. You get the opportunity for exhibits and some free time. On Saturday, the doors open at eight o'clock a.m. with exhibits and a continental breakfast, some time of worship, plenary sessions, workshops, and so on. Follows a similar pathway that you're familiar with. Through Mission Connection, with the same kinds of opportunities to connect with people who are in the field, who know what they're talking about when it comes to short-term mission. And if you're preparing a trip, if you're thinking about uh, establishing something for the church, or you're an individual interested in the prospect of of partnering in a short-term mission, this is a great opportunity to become well-equipped. I've done a number of short-term mission trips, and in fact, I've done uh, travel with you, Matt, and I've I've gone on trips that are very well-prepared and organized, and people are, are really doing effective ministry, and I've been on the other end of that continuum, and what a difference it makes when we understand uh, what it is we're doing and do it well. So I'm, I'm grateful that short-term mission connection is available to help all of us do a better job when we're, our, our goal is ministry and to accomplish that goal well to the glory of God and to uh, uh, to the edification of those we are coming to serve. Any other details you want uh, our listeners to know? Well, there is a pre-conference uh, as yes. well taking place before Short-Term Mission Connection. It's, uh, it's put on by uh, the par- a partnering organization with Mission Connection called Standards of Excellence, and uh, it's what they call their Standard Introductory Workshop. Uh, it's it provides uh, just some really great intense but basic training to really help, especially help uh, missions pastors and mission team leaders really feel fully confident, fully prepared uh, to help set up a you know a missions program or lead a short-term missions team anywhere in the world. So uh, both, I, I think, if you if you have the time, take advantage of the pre-conference and the conference. I've participated in the pre-conference as well last year. It was outstanding. Again, all events are at Eastridge Church in Clackamas, and that pre-conference, the Standards of Excellence um, uh, conference, is Thursday at night, 7 to 9, and then on Friday, all day, 8 a.m. to 4 p.m., and you can uh, actually attend the Short-Term Mission Connection conference if you'd like following that, because they're all at the same location. That um, Standards of Excellence uh, program is a 10-hour seminar. It's designed to help practitioners understand how they can incorporate and achieve uh, competence in the seven standard areas for uh, for short-term missions. So it's a it's going to be a full weekend and great opportunities uh, to learn how to be an effective servant uh, on a short-term mission trip. Well, Matt, I so appreciate your taking the time to make sure our listeners know about this opportunity, and I'll be sure to mention it a few times uh, up until the date it actually begins. But this is uh, another one of these stellar opportunities that Mission Connection provides to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. And again, the short-term uh, mission connection, the uh, 23rd, 
24th with the pre-conference beginning on the 22nd. And you can find out uh, more at the Mission Connection website. That's Mission Connection with an X dot com. Hey, thanks so much, Matt. Well, thank you, Georgine. And, you know, if you get a chance, come join us in East Africa again sometime. Oh, it's on my bucket list. (laughs) I would love to do that. Thanks so much. God bless. Okay, God bless. Bye-bye. I traveled with uh, Matt Talman several years ago with Open Arms International. And, in fact, the village that they were constructing was just a vision at that point. We were there for the groundbreaking of the first building. And now I'm certain I wouldn't even recognize the place because so much has been done. Um, so I do, uh, Dan Rice and I both would like very much to visit that uh, that patch of ground again, because I recognize it as sort of a barren wilderness, although there was lots of vegetation. Now there are buildings and a hospital and schools and all kinds of things uh, that are there. All right. Uh, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break, but we will be back. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. A couple of cases I wanted to draw to your attention. A Christian group that has prevailed in court. They're going to be reinstated as a campus organization after they were stripped of their club status for disqualifying an active homosexual from running for its leadership position. Now, they allow anyone to, to be a part of the organization, but not to serve in leadership unless they embrace and subscribe to their, their core principles. Well, U.S. District Judge Stephanie Rose granted a temporary injunction blocking the University of Iowa's ban against the campus Christian group, Business Leaders in Christ. We talked about it a week or so ago. The decision on Tuesday allowed the uh, uh, organization to recruit at a fair in the uh, student union earlier in the week. The university has to stop discriminating against BLINK, which is the name of the group, B-L in caps, I-N and then C in caps, uh, because it's relig- of its religious beliefs. Beckett Fund attorney Eric Baxter stated in a press release, every other group on campus gets to select leaders who embrace their mission. Religious groups don't get a second-class treatment, or least shouldn't. Gay activist Marcus Miller applied for Blink leadership, but refused to agree with Blink's statement of faith, which includes sexual chastity outside heterosexual marriage. He expressly stated that he rejected Blink's religious beliefs and would not follow them, the group explained. This is obviously a setup. Temporarily um, reversing the university's ban, the judge reasoned that the school is not consistently enforcing its own anti-discrimination policy. She noted as an example, a campus Muslim group which excludes all but Muslims. Blink's uh, motion is granted based solely upon the university's selective enforcement of an otherwise reasonable and viewpoint neutral non-discrimination policy. The judge, uh, or rather the uh, attorney Baxter went on to say that public universities can't tell religious student groups uh, what to believe or who to pick as their leaders. The court has told the University of Iowa to stop discrimination against Blink because of its religious beliefs. Well, when Judge Rose uh, asked why the university had, uh, hadn't punished the Muslim group or others that limit their leadership, the school's lawyer said enforcement of its anti-discrimination policy is in response to complaints, and UI hadn't received any other complaints. Even Marcus Miller's own gay religious organization requires executive offers to sign and agree with its mission statement and core beliefs. Well, Blink has shown that the university does not consistently and equally 
apply its human rights policy, the judge wrote. This raises an issue regarding whether Blink's viewpoint was the reason it was not allowed to operate, while at the same time, Imam Mahdi uh, was not subjected to any enforcement action at all. Well, Blink's lawsuits uh, said just that, maintaining that they didn't turn down Marcus Millo for leadership because he was a homosexual, but because he refused to agree to the organization's statement of faith, which includes sexual chastity outside of heterosexual marriage. A university statement says it's res- it respects the decision of the court and allowed Blink in the student union to recruit on Wednesday. After the uh, 90-day injunction, both parties may take an, uh, any additional action they deem necessary. Blink hopes its uh, lawsuit serves as a reminder to universities there and elsewhere that they can't discriminate against student groups just because they don't like their beliefs. Nicole Russell at the Washington Examiner opined, hopefully this will be a step toward ensuring that religious student groups are treated in the same way as other groups on campus rather than being ostracized for their faith. In 2012, the U.S. Supreme Court unanimously ruled that religious institutions have a constitutional right to determine their leaders without government interference. Meanwhile, Jim Caviezel, he is promising that the Passion of the Christ sequel will be the biggest film in history. It's that good, he says. Well, it is a sequel to The Passion of the Christ, which uh, was uh, uh, debuted to audiences nearly 14 years ago. It was a religious and is a religious epic. It smashed box office records to become the highest grossing film ever in North America at $370.8 million. Now that a sequel to the hit film is in the works with Mel Gibson returning in the director's chair, the film star Jim Caviezel promises that it will be the biggest film in history. Caviezel promised that the film will deliver the goods and audiences will be more than just pleased. There are things that I cannot say that will shock the audience, he said. It's great. Stay tuned. Now, of course, the um, the first, the Passion of the Christ, uh, led up to the crucifixion of Christ. So presumably this will follow that event that would include the resurrection. But Caviezel, uh, Caviezel rather, uh, said of Gibson, I won't tell you how he's going to go about it, but I'll tell you this much. The film is going to do um, is going to be the biggest film in history. It's that good. Well, in 2016, as rumors of a sequel began circulating, Mel Gibson told USA Today that the challenge would be to make something cinematic. And that is Uh, simultaneously fresh without being heretical. So that's quite a challenge. The resurrection, big subject, Gibson said. Uh, We're trying to craft this in a way that's cinematically compelling and enlightening so that it shines new light, if possible, without creating some weird thing. Well, Jim Caviezel has uh, become an outspoken Christian in recent years. Just last month, he urged believers to preach Christianity to a pagan world, which is, of course, par for the course for a, a believer who takes the Great Commission seriously. I want you to go out into this pagan world. I want you to have the courage to step into this pagan world and shamelessly express your faith in public. He told audiences at the Fellowship of Catholic University Students SLS Leadership Conference, the world needs proud warriors animated by their faith. Well, I should mention that uh, Jim Caviezel is also um, starring in the forthcoming movie, and I believe it's going to be out this this Easter season. It is the movie on the Apostle Paul, and he plays um, Luke, the Apostle. And I've seen the trailer. It took me three times to watch it to figure out who the characters were. And I figured out that Jim Caviezel is the is Luke. And then the Apostle Paul, they feature him at different stages in his life. So when he's in prison in Rome, he has one image. But when he's younger, it's hard to make the connection between the two. But there is a trailer that you can watch online now. And uh, Jim Caviezel is uh, featured in that film as well. 
And it is purportedly very well done. I'm always a little bit skeptical. Um, I think when James Blend and I went to see Noah, we had very low expectations, to be quite honest, because um, we've come to to see a lot of these films that try to appeal to a faith-based audience, don't really share the faith and don't really know the story or the point of the story. And Noah was an epic fail in terms of communicating the biblical story. So I'm always a little bit um, skeptical about whether or not Hollywood in its various forms is capable of communicating accurately a story um, that has such significance. But we'll see with uh, with this new movie that's coming out. And again, my understanding is that we're expecting that right about Easter time. So we can look forward to that. I believe the title is simply The Apostle Paul. And that's um, that's due to come out shortly. So looking forward to uh, to seeing that in its entirety. Uh, also, um, Tortured for Christ. Uh, the movie is uh, is currently um, being made. And my understanding is I tried all day today to see the uh, um, this is Voice of the Martyrs to see the trailer for that film. I'm not even sure when it's released, but it's going to be. Well, that's not that's not entirely true. It's going to be released in theaters, I believe, um, either. Well, early late, late winter or early spring. I tried to watch the trailer and get more information, but you can go to. Um, the uh, website for more information on that. But Tortured for Christ is the story of Voice of the Martyrs founder and uh, tells that story. And I believe uh, portions of the film are actually uh, taken from the uh, the facility where he was held for some 12 to 15 years because of his Christian faith. So a lot coming up. Um, one can only hope that it's true to the uh, to the story in Scripture and to the actual events, but time will tell. Again, Jim Caviezel promising that the sequel to The Passion of the Christ will be the biggest film in history. And, of course, that covers, I think, the 12 hours leading up to the crucifixion of Christ and this uh, this sequel, and I'm not even sure what the name is. They didn't mention it in the coverage, would pick up the story from that point moving forward uh, just before or up to the ascension. So looking forward to hearing and seeing more about that in the uh, in the days to come. Well, tomorrow is Friday. We're going to lighten things up. We're looking forward to taking a look at some of the lighter side of the news. Hope you will join us. Um, in the meantime, have a great evening and be grateful for for what we've got. Uh, Clark Hilton engineered today's program. James Blind produced today's program. And I want to thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Just want to give you one final heads up. Matt Tallman joined us to talk about short-term Mission Connection. Check that out at missionconnection.com. And that's spelled, of course, with an X. Uh, more details about short-term connection. And I believe prayer connection is the next one. And you can find out details about those two and others that are coming in the uh, in the weeks and months ahead. So check that out. Also, Romans Project, a great uh, opportunity to influence the leaders in Asian and African countries that desperately need training so that they can train their people um, in the ways of the scriptures. So check those out. Hey, thanks so much for listening and have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. 
Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.